Good afternoon and welcome to the Purple Firm Rundown, where we give you the insider rundown on legal firms and the current legal trends. My name is Emma Ganim and today I am joined by Neva Desai, trainee solicitor at Charles Russell Speechless, currently in her first seat in private client litigation. Today we'll be talking about her time at the firm, private client litigation and the current challenges that art lawyers are facing. For anyone who doesn't know, Charles Russell Speechless is a UK-based firm which also works internationally with offices across London, Cheltenham and Guildford. In late 2014, Charles Russell and Speechly Bircham merged, creating a powerhouse firm for those of a high net worth or ultra high net worth persuasion. Specialising in cross-border and domestic work, the firm scores high ratings for private wealth work across its UK bases, as well as for family, immigration and other cultural property matters, which we'll be talking about today. So thank you for coming on the show, Neva. It's great to have you. Thanks very much for having me. It's a pleasure. So firstly, could you tell us a bit more about the specific area that you're currently sitting in at CRS and who you typically represent? Yes, absolutely. So I'm sitting in private work disputes. This is my first seat. Um, The reason I find it quite exciting is that CRS, it's sort of uniquely divided into two limbs. So the first limb is art and luxury law, and the second is called contentious trust. Um, Art and luxury law does what it says on the tin. Um, It deals with art-related disputes involving private clients who are often high net worth or ultra high net worth individuals, including collectors, auction houses, and regulatory authorities. This area of law is really about helping people protect the value of art and objects that they love and that, that have often been passed down generations. And that can range from, you know, a really nice case of wine to a very famous painting or a vintage car. Um, and so that's the first limb. The second limb is uh, contentious trust. This is all about trust law disputes, often involving complex international trust structures, as well as court of protection work involving mental capacity disputes. Now, this sort of work is highly personal and involves advising on very complex trust structures, um, as well as luxury objects, which have, you know, sort of stood the test of time and generations and families and lawyers. And that's what's really exciting about it. That's amazing. So what do you think, apart from that two-limbed approach that you were talking about, is really unique about your firm's practice areas and which one do you think are are going to grow the most in the future? So I think CRS is, at least to me, is particularly special as it offers the full range of legal solutions and legal advice ranging from commercial advice involving sort of transactional and disputes work to the full range of private client expertise ranging from setting up a will, managing a private estate, or resolving disputes within families as well as outside families. And this sort of model that CRS has adopted really helps build a very robust and loyal client base as we offer solutions and advice for a family or a corporation or both of them. And so we're sort of catering to the needs of clients, whether they are personal or commercial, which means you really get to know the client And then you sort of pass work around different teams in the same form and you really acquaint yourself with what the client's priorities are, whether they are personal to do with their family or home or whether they are to do with um, 
the way they want to run their business or the way they want to set up a trust structure. Uh, and that's what's, I think, really special about CRS, that uh, a lot of firms don't have this sort of model. Mm. Are there any other aspects of the firm that drew you to it or set it apart from other firms also specialising in a similar area? Well, that's a really good question. And I think it's... Um, a very cliche thing to say, the, the, the culture of the firm, but I, I can't not say it on this interview because the culture for me was really the, the one of the greatest selling points when it came to this firm. Um, and specifically, it was the fact that I saw cleverness and ambition coexist with genuinely friendly, patient and approachable lawyers. And this is something that I hadn't encountered before. I always think, oh, being you know, intelligent and ambitious is mutually exclusive with being kind and approachable and, and, and tolerant of, of trainees and, and junior lawyers. But it's, it's really a place where both these things coexist and uh, you're surrounded by incredibly talented lawyers who also spend a lot of time and are, are really invested in trainee development. And I think the second thing that sort of stood stood up for me was that it's just a front runner in all things private client. Um, CRS, you know, they often ranked uh, as one of the top or the top law firm when it comes to private client stuff. And I was very interested in that area early on. And so it was sort of the obvious choice for me. And what do you think are the unique skills that a private client lawyer must have over that of a typical commercial lawyer? Because a lot of a lot of us students, we hear the regular, you know, the buzzwords of, you know, commercial awareness and other words of skills that you need to have. But are there, do you think there are any specific um, different skills that you need to have as a private client lawyer? Gosh, commercial awareness. It's been a while since I've heard that. It's really still a Pandora's box to me, even now. Uh, it's really bringing back horrible memories of like sifting through um, uh, Finimize and all of those things while doing my applications. But um, no, that, that, that's, that's a really good question as well. I think um, being a private client lawyer requires you to have all the sort of generic legal skills that you did, some of which you did mention. But I think on top of that, um, First is discretion, the ability to deal with really high profile matters as well as very high profile clients in a fiercely private and discreet manner is a non-negotiable skill. Um, you're often dealing with highly sensitive matters and uh, that are very dynamic, that are ongoing, often, you know, parts of which are leaked into papers or reported in, in, in magazines and the news. And it's it's really important to be very private about um, the, the clients that you're working with, as well as the work that you're working on, that you're sort of doing, um, you're, you're acting on. And, and that I, I would say that that is um, one of the most important skills that a private client lawyer should have. The second I would say, and I think this applies across the legal profession, whether you're thinking about solicitors or barristers, and that's emotional intelligence. Um, understanding people and their motivations and their reasons for doing things, as well as the ability to talk to people who are interested in all sorts of different things, who are passionate about, you know, a diverse, diversity of things. And being able to interact with people smoothly is one of the skills that I found quite, that, that that's quite important. And I think it's quite under, under discussed. Um, mm -hmm. More should be done to develop it uh, through university. Yes, and I guess that kind of links on to my next question. I mean, as a student, I mean, you've you've only just started being a trainee, so I guess you're 
only just starting to get into the world of work so you've got quite a unique perspective on this um so as a student did you feel that you were given enough exposure to the private client space or do you think that it was very much dominated by commercial law that is that that's that's a brilliant question because i think it really it really hits where it hurts where i think when i was an undergrad um a lot of us was pushed down the commercial law route. And um, that's not to say that commercial law is, you know, not extremely interesting and highly challenging. But for some people, I think commercial law is, it's important to know that commercial law is not the only option you have if you want to work in London, if you have done a law degree, or if you're looking to convert to law, there's loads of other options that you can look at. And I think a lot of, especially I think Russell Group universities tend to um, bring commercial law, um, commercial law firms, uh, commercial law chambers at law fairs, at careers fairs, and that gives you this very myopic, skewed view of um, of, of legal careers in the city of London. Um, and that was my experience as well. But I think when I did come across CRS, I realized I, that was my sort of conduit into learning about the private client world and looking at other private client law firms as well. Um, and I would say my my sort of unsolicited tip to uh, uh, law students and non-law students would be that be proactive in seeking out the different departments and the different areas that you can get involved in. Um, it's a bit of a gateway thing. Once you know areas like private client, or even if it's like personal injury, clinical negligence, um, housing law, social welfare law, these are areas that exist and they have a lot of challenging and interesting um, problems to solve as well as work to do in these areas. So uh, being sort of being proactive in uh, doing your research and Googling away uh, for non-commercial law options is something I would recommend, especially because it's a bit it's a bit of a shame that I think a lot of universities still uh, over advertise commercial law um, and don't give other areas their due recognition. Mm. Um, but yeah, yeah. So I would say there was a bit of an underexposure when it came to private client. Um, and but I'm glad I'm, I found it eventually. <laughs> yeah, I was telling you this, actually, that I was talking to my friends of, like about this topic and about um, how it's still very much dominated by commercial law and I don't think it's going to change anytime soon unfortunately um, and a lot of people don't want to do commercial law and don't want to go to you know the typical magic circle law firm that is always put out there so I think being proactive is so important especially in this environment don't just feel that you have to go down a certain path even if your universities don't don't sort of push you down that route um i think there's other ways of getting involved so there's um careers like if you if you're interested in being a barrister there's a pupillage fair that goes on every year in november and if you're interested in being a solicitor i know the law society puts on uh various events throughout the year so those are good resources if you want to look at sort of non-commercial options. And uh, there's also, they don't have to be mutually exclusive. CRS, for example, is a very good, ex very good um, example of a firm where you get to do both things. You get to do commercial law and you get to do various uh, non-commercial options in private client, in family, in um, employment law. Um, and so you can have 
a bit of both as well if that's what you're interested in. Uh, so you don't have to choose one over the other. A training contract can be quite well-rounded and you just have to find the right form that lets you do that. Could you explain a bit about your own journey into this area of law and what, what drew you to it? What's your background? So I've had a pretty linear, uh, boring trajectory into law. I've done an undergrad LLB um, at UCL. Um, I then took a year out and did theatre and acting in um, India back home, which was very exciting. I then did the LLM at Cambridge and then the LPC, and now I'm doing the training contract. So while that's sort of my trajectory on paper, I think um, I think it's quite important to see what's happening behind the curtains. And for me, it was the what was going on in my mind since a pretty early age was that I wanted to build a career that was people-oriented, that was really important to me. Um, I come from a family of doctors and I've always heard, you know, my parents talk about patients and their uh, sort of relations with people, as well as how invested they get in matters because it involves, you know, very real people and very real problems. And that was something that I was very interested in. Um, but at the same time, I really enjoyed uh, the sort of art of persuasion. I love the idea of convincing someone of something using my critical analysis or using my words. And I thought that the best, um, a combination of both those things, sort of being people-oriented and liking persuasion, would lead me down two paths, either become an actress or become a lawyer. And I did try my hand very briefly at the first. And it was it was very interesting and fun, but I think I really missed a bit of the intellectual engagement. And so then I decided that I would fully commit to the legal uh, part. Um, and that's how I got to A, law, and B, private client law being a special interest because it is people-oriented. Obviously has its this element of persuasion or, or convincing as a lawyer. You're always trying to do that, whether that's with your own client or opposing counsel or the opposing side. Um, it's, it's, it's a big element of the job, which, which I really enjoy. And so that's how I got here to sort of private client law. Well, that's so interesting. I love how you had the decision between acting and being a lawyer. I think that's so, that's so unique. I've never heard of that before, but it sounds so interesting. <laughs> it was, it really was, um, it was a 50-50 decision, you know. Um, I, I wanted to be talking all the time, which I am doing as, as, as we are here today as well. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I wanted to be uh, intellectually engaged. And I think law really gives you a very sound opportunity for both those things. Amazing. And I guess this is um, moving away from yourself and moving to the area that you specialize in, which is art and luxury law. Um, I know you've just started your seat, but what, what do you think um, at the moment is the greatest challenge that is facing art and luxury lawyers? Um, well, I think the it would be similar to the challenges that are faced by lawyers generally um, across the legal sector. The first would be, I think, volatility. Um, dare I mention, uh, we're looking for economic stability, we're looking for political stability, and those things seem quite hard to come by at this point. Um, but I think that sort of volatility really does impact the legal sector. Um, it ranges from, you know, constant um, changes in regulations and guidelines to uh, rules about litigation, rules about uh, data protection, Brexit as well, right? So I think it's just a, a combination of economic and political uncertainty that um, results in 
um, making it quite a difficult job to advise clients on some things because uh, before you know you've mastered the law, the law has already changed, and that's something hard. That that is something that's quite hard to make sure that you keep up with. Uh, that being said, um, at least at the firm I work at, there's an entire department um, dedicated to knowledge and development. So they are fantastic people. They spent their full-time job is to keep up with the law, update the rest of the lawyers with what's going on, what's the new guidelines that have been you know, released today, uh, what's a change in the disclosure protocol, whatever it is. Uh, and that is you know, an indispensable resource um, of the firm. Uh, I, I think the second sort of challenge would be um, digitalization. There's so many changes that come with um, e-filings, e-courts, e-bundles, and getting used to these changes, I think, is easier for uh, the younger generations, especially Gen Z. But I think uh, older lawyers might find that a bit challenging and because they've been, you know, practicing on paper all their lives, Mm. making sure that the adaptation to the sort of digital world is smooth is is a difficult thing given how traditional the legal sector is generally. Mm. And I guess linking from that theme of digitalization, um, how do you think digitalization has impacted auction housing? And do you think this has presented a challenge or opportunities uh, for art and luxury lawyers? Yeah, that's a very interesting question. Um, I think so the obvious benefit of d- digitalization generally is that you know transactions have become easier selling things buying things it's 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 a lot more convenient given that um the digital world transcends geographical boundaries um however i think of a particular note is the crypto world and cryptocurrencies um they've become so popular and and, and such a large talking point in the art world as well um that it's something that I've spent many, many hours trying to understand and uh, furiously YouTubing away while learning how to uh, buy and sell an NFT just to you know, understand how our clients do it. Um, and in fact, NFT artwork has taken off. Uh, you might have heard there was a famous, there's a famous NFT artist um, called Beeple and he sold his NFT artwork for $69 million. Um, at a Christie's auction. And this is just like, it's it's a digital piece of art. And it's incredible that, um, you know, technology has come this far and it's very much becoming a part of uh, mainstream auctioning at the biggest auction houses like Sotheby's and Christie's. In fact, the Law Commission of England is currently undertaking a nationwide consultation on digital assets like NFTs. And you'll have lawyers and judges and um, stakeholders from all over the country commenting on their report, because um, as you might appreciate, just figuring out how to uh, classify NFTs and digital assets uh, within the sort of traditional sphere of law is very difficult. There's, we can only extend property law principles up to a certain point before you have to start thinking about creating law that adapts better to um, the digital world. So I think that's that sort of NFT artwork, digital assets have really been the new sort of been at the cutting edge of the art law world at this point. That's so interesting. You were mentioning um, the consultation that's happening now on, on NFTs and how we can define property. But I guess before that consultation finishes, has have lawyers been 
has has it been a struggle to with data privacy and intellectual property matters in this sphere has has it been a struggle with the ambiguity in the law um yes absolutely i think there's just been gaps in the law that can't be filled in by our traditional common law principles and so that's in a way a very fun time for lawyers because it's time to get creative and it's time to devise these really ingenious solutions to problems of ownership and problems of um copyright as you mentioned um and i think it's 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 very fulfilling as well for lawyers it is challenging but it's also very fulfilling because you really have to start employing the very basic legal principles you learned in law school uh, when with property law when you're trying to sort of apply them to these new uh, digital assets that we've never encountered before um so it is challenging because of you know obvious gaps in the law but it's also very fulfilling because you have to do that's when you really do your intellectual legwork and try to come up with very creative solutions to, to to problems and try to help your clients with these creative solutions that's so interesting and obviously a very exciting time now that with this consultation happening and obviously um new legislation coming out in the next couple of years which will hopefully make it clearer for you but in the meantime you know having a little imagination i guess is quite crucial for a lawyer as well so neva what are your next steps then do you think i think my next steps involve um getting better at two things the first is time management um so knowing how to juggle various responsibilities is a core part of the training contract and being a trainee solicitor um and the second would be to figure out how i can you know obviously continue paying full attention to my day job and um working on the tasks at hand but at the same time investing in my own development as a trainee and the firm gives you a plethora of opportunities to you know develop various soft skills it skills tech skills and so i want to be making full use of that i've still not figured out how to do both things at the same time have a sort of present focus but at the same time have my eyes on the future and my future development so i think that's going to be my next step to figure out how to do that as i move through the various seats So I guess for any students who want to get involved or want to find out more about Charles Russell Speechless um are there any opportunities for them to do that? Yes, absolutely. Please do get involved. So we have a London Open Day which is on 7th December, a Cheltenham Open Day on 8th December, a Guildford Open Day on 13th December and a virtual Open Day on 11th January in 2023. Um the deadline for applications for all of these Open Days is 16th November 2022 so that's quite soon uh but it's not a very burdensome application so i would encourage all those interested um in commercial law and private client law uh both of them um to apply thank you very much neva i think that wraps it up for today's episode of the purple firm rundown uh keep updated for next week to watch our discussion on insurance litigation in the current economy with hogan lovell's trainee solicitor bethany savage until then have a good evening purple radio podcasts thanks for downloading this purple radio podcast for more great content and to listen live head to purpleradio.co.uk